Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York to catch up with us is Willem Bauter, City Special Economic Advisor. Good morning to you, Willem. Good morning. Take me into that room on Thursday. How much tension? Uh, plenty of tension uh, because the threat uh, to impose meaningful additional sanctions to go from 10 to 25 on 200 billion worth of trade uh, is, uh, is, is a scary one. And it will happen you know, at 12 a.m. in the morning on Friday, uh, sort of within 24 hours of the arrival of uh, Liu He. So um, prospects are worrying. We've got to make some real progress on Thursday, seemingly. From the, your team over at City, before this week, I assume, you guys upgraded your growth forecast for China to 6.6% year on year. And underpinning that was a pretty clear assumption that you thought the outcome of these talks would be favourable, Willem. Have things changed for you? Well, even if we don't get a deal uh, no, by Friday, uh, no, we may get a deal within... Uh, the rest of this quarter or not 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 late afterwards this is not war forever necessarily right and we don't expect it to be so yes if we get the full package of sanctions uh, further trade sanctions imposed not just on the 200 billion but on the additional 325 billion at 25 percent that could knock 0.8 percent of chinese growth in a year uh, and um but that, I think, is the worst-case scenario, and uh, it's in nobody's interest, neither the Chinese nor the Americans, to let that uh, come about. Is global growth picking up right now? I mean, you mentioned, John mentions a Chinese lift by Citigroup, but as a broad statement, can we say the real gloom about global recession X number of months ago has been solved, and has it been solved by Chairman Powell? Well, uh, we were never in global recession land. I think there was excessive pessimism about it. Okay. Um, I think that the end of uh, the global recession fears is mostly driven by developments in, in China and uh, uh, partly reflecting that in, in Europe. Uh, Mr. Powell, I think, is uh, basically doing what he is expected to do and is not making a, I think, a distinct, meaningful, expansionary contribution. Uh, yes, counterfactually, if you were raising rates, clearly things would uh, look a lot tighter. But uh, given right. given where we are, I think the U.S. is a, um, uh, an enthusiastic okay. bystander. What question would you ask the vice chairman this morning? Or Michael McKee will have an intense conversation, folks, in the 10 o'clock hour with Richard Clarida. What question would you ask Professor Clarida of Columbia University? Mm -hmm. What external developments could be of significance for your domestic rate decisions? I mean, I'm, I, I, I look at the external developments. It could be trade, it could be inventory and such, but the trade dynamic now is a complete mystery, isn't it? Right. And clearly, it is a, a global negative. Uh, any aggravation of great conflict will hurt both uh, 
the US and China, and enough well, of that uh, <clears throat> could even cause the Fed to move. Meredith Sumter is going to join us in, in, with her experience with ambassadors in Beijing. But let me ask you the mathy question. If tariffs go from X percent to Y percent, in this case is a general statement from 10 percent to 25 percent, everything I've ever read, it's nonlinear. I mean, it's got a convexity to it and an accelerating impact across many different parties, doesn't it? Most likely, yes. The amount of ignorance about, uh, well, not, not quite the sign, but certainly the magnitude of these effects and then the linearity is staggering. But I would expect that uh, a 25% tariff would uh, have a bigger mm -hmm. effect than... Uh, uh, two and a half times a 10% Yeah, this tariff. is really important yes. math, John. It, to me, it's massively nonlinear, particularly as they select out who to go after. Well, we have to break down, of course, the slowdown in China from the trade-related slowdown and the one they self-engineered themselves. Um, Willem, have they addressed the second part of the slowdown in China? The trade story is largely out of their control. They can do something about it, but they're not totally in control of it. The domestic-related slowdown was something they engineered themselves. Have they been addressing that enough over the last few months? Not the fundamentals. The reason that they were tightening uh, until quite recently uh, is that um, there was excessive leverage and excessive further build-up of leverage. And uh, whenever they address that, surprise, surprise, the economy slows down. And at that point, there is a reversal, a partial reversal of the tightening, which is what we've seen this time, uh, in addition to the fiscal stimulus that they threw at the slowing economy. So we are in a world in which successive Chinese stimuli, uh, while still uh, impactful, <coughs> become relatively less effective for a given size stimulus. Right. Are you going to watch tomorrow? None of this trade chat matters. I mean, Tottenham has been so weak recently. The Tots have been so weak that the team from the Netherlands is going to do okay, right? Uh, Ajax is my team, so uh, yeah. I definitely am both uh, optimistic and deeply supportive, yes. What's the difference between Netherlands football and English football, John? Historically? Yeah, I'm asking. Historically, the Dutch are recognized for playing what was called total football. Just this beautiful game where every player on the pitch could really pass it around, control the ball nicely. They were really the pioneers of playing the more attractive football that you like to watch, Tom. Back in the 70s. Are you just saying this because Bowder's here? No, Willem would agree. It's, it's the likes of Johan no, Cruyff. True. And then later on in the 80s and the 90s, it was the likes of Van Basten, Ruud Hullet, Frank Rickard. Some fantastic Dutch players who all played for, guess who? AC Milan. Oh, they did, didn't they? So, I mean, the Tots have just, they're, they're done. They can't do it, can they? I mean, no, this, this is a layup, right? To me, it would be a small miracle if the Tots were to beat I Ajax. I love that we're, yes. re we're referring to Spurs <laughs> as the Tots. Willem and his days, he... days living in North London never referred to Spurs as the Tots. That's true. Okay. That's true. <laughs> Professor Bowder, thank you Good so much you, for Willem. joining us this morning on... Uh, how do you pronounce it? It's not Ajax. A Ajax. 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 A-J-A-X. Ajax. And also a little bit of talk on economics as well. Villain Bowders with, with Citigroup as well. This is the interview of the day on China, the United States in trade. 
And I can say that because she spent more quality time in Beijing than any American tourist. Meredith Sumter is with Ian Bremmer's Eurasia Group, and she's definitive on sitting in Beijing and advising Americans about A, what to do for lunch, and B, what to do about the Chinese government. My major question, I've been there a bunch of times, and you go to the Forbidden City, and me like everybody else, I got like 20 minutes to do the Forbidden City, which is ridiculous. The walls are, you know, just getting through the front door. Sure. It's like Game of Thrones. What's the story about the moat? If you live in Beijing, the moat is like this ginormous I knew this is where this deal. conversation was going. But, but for you that have <laughs> spent so much this? time there, what is it about the moat? I went to a restaurant there and I was like, I don't get it. It's just yeah. historic. Yeah, it, it's it's historic, but really more importantly, you need to be spending more time in the hutongs around the moat that surround What's the a forbidden. Hutong? So these are the 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 very old, some would say, sort of ancient neighborhoods that have been right. in Beijing the, yeah. for hundreds yeah. and hundreds okay. of years. So people are still living out of these these homes, these neighborhoods around the Forbidden City. Do they care about China U.S. traders? This just a back and forth about fancy elites. Actually, you know, surprisingly. Trump is quite popular in China, probably much to Xi's chagrin. He's seen as someone who is standing up to the, the whole way- bully thing. I mean, in a, in a, not in a pejorative word, but but he's like a bully, right? And well, they like that. So the, the Chinese respect strength, and you'll hear this from diplomats time and time again. Uh, and it's one of the, the chief criticisms that the the current White House has of previous White House that uh, White House is that the engagement really didn't do all that much for us. Now you have to keep in mind that the engagement of China, uh, let's say post-WTO accession, that was a different China than the one that we see under Xi Jinping. Fundamentally different behavior. So engagement might have been the right choice pre-Xi Jinping, but once it became clear that Xi was going to take a markedly different approach than China's collective leadership model, that's when you began to see the shine come off of the engagement model. And that's why we're now in this more confrontational phase. So do you think this confrontational approach of this current White House is actually quite effective? I would say it's changed the conversation dramatically. And regardless of if we had a Trump or a, a, a Hillary Clinton in the White House, we were going to go toward this phase of confrontation. Hillary Clinton as president probably would have um, employed different tactics, uh, but President Trump correctly identified the problem and he's doing something about it. Now, not everybody agrees that it's, it's ultimately going to be effective, but what they do agree is the old way of trying to persuade and engage China is no longer the way that the U.S. is. The U.S. is not going to be as successful in trying to modify Chinese behavior in a way that supports the U.S. economic model. So let's set up these talks this coming Thursday. Right. The threat of higher tariffs hanging over the talks. They would come into effect on Friday. The talks begin on Thursday. We still don't know where the Chinese stand, what their response is to the threat of higher tariffs. What do you think it will be? Well, it's certainly not going to be capitulating to White House demands, right? So, and you know, the president has given Liu He, who's going to be coming in on Thursday, he's got 12 hours to come up with something to avert the threat of tariffs on Friday. Now, President Trump has delayed this, this escalation of tariffs twice before, and he could do it again. Uh, but we tend to think that he's serious about following through on, on this threat. You raised something important in your research, the staying power of any agreement. What will the staying power be of any potential agreement between these two sides? This is where the confrontation really is going to kick into gear. Markets are too focused on the viability of a deal. 
And we think that markets are being too positive of a deal is reached, everything's going to be fine. At Eurasia Group, we actually see the deal as the beginning or the, the end of the beginning, right? Once a deal is in place, and this is why Bob Lighthizer is so fundamentally focused on the enforcement mechanism. Sure. He fully believes and expects that China is not going to live up to the agreement the way that Washington views it should. And this is this is critical because Beijing will view a commitment my time as a diplomat will will time and time again it's the same the same issue you will have a phrase and washington's view of that commitment of that phrase is different than how china is going to interpret it Lighthizer knows this. So this is why he says the enforcement mechanism, the most important, because he knows he's going to have to use it. So what that means, Tom, is that you get a deal, but we're going to have onward tariffs, onward economic confrontation that will not be market-pleasing. Jonathan Spence 101, we want contract, paper, rule of law. What do they want? They don't want a contract, a treaty, an agreement. What do they want? A photo op? They want to manage the pressure coming from Washington. They do not want to compromise Xi Jinping's state-led economic model. So all of the concessions that China is going to agree to, what they're trying to do is to do just enough to ease onward pressure coming from Washington while retaining its inherent character as a state-directed economy. That's Xi Jinping's red line. Do you think that's likely, that he'll be able to to achieve that with this White House? Did you understand what she just said? Yeah, absolutely. I do. Continue. <laughs> do you think that's likely? Do you think that's achievable? Do I think what... That, that President Xi can carry on with that objective? Absent Washington working in concert with other liberal market economies, collectively putting pressure on Beijing, I think it's, it's probable that Xi Jinping will be able to power through. Now, you're going to see, you're going to see some reforms that are going to be market-pleasing, right? So last week's announcement of financial sector liberalization adroitly timed to make it seem like China is reforming in line with the way that Washington wants it to. But the audience really was not Washington. The need wasn't Washington. The imperative was actually Chinese domestic okay, so economic what's reform the audience? needs. It's Tuesday, Wednesday. They drive in from Dulles Thursday, I guess. Right. They show up somewhere in the vicinity of Thursday night. They're going to be up at Ben's Chili Bowl on U Street, chowing down. Or they're going to be Friday with the president, Mr. Lighthizer and all. Maybe they do a photo op. Who knows? Who are they playing to back in China? There's only one guy they're playing to back in China. At this point, yes. At this point, yes. And so you said earlier, Meredith Sumter, that President Xi needs to be forceful and be the Chinese-like aggression and certitude. So how are we going to hear that from the Chinese delegation? From what we've seen thus far, China has not yet decided how it's going to respond. And I I think what we need to watch is the tone of the language coming out of Leo Lighthizer talks. Do you hear that in English or do you hear that in Mandarin? I mean, are you going to translate their tone back to China as Meredith Sumter can only do? You're going to hear the tone coming from Washington to Beijing, but then you need to read the Chinese press and the Chinese media to be able to see how they're going to bake this in. John, you can handle that Monday morning? Oh, yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll digest and translate the Chinese press. It it may well be easy because there might be another blackout. That's the problem with how this plays in China. When the president tweeted over the weekend, it wasn't playing in the Chinese press whatsoever. Right. Has that changed this morning? I haven't checked this morning. I wouldn't be surprised 
if it has not changed. But it, it shows you that Beijing is not yet ready. Beijing was taken by surprise yeah. and is not yet ready to respond. Now, they can't hold this blackout forever, and, and it knows that. So this is why I'm saying watch, watch how Lighthizer is framing the prospects for onward negotiations and a deal coming out of Friday. But, you know, before we were saying, look, likelihood we're going to get a deal by the G20 uh, in Japan end of June. That's the next, the next forcing mechanism where Trump and Xi are going to be meeting together on the mm-hmm. sidelines. What happened on Sunday and what's happening this week is likely going to derail that. Meredith, thank you Meredith, so much. Thank we'll you. see you Thursday Meredith and Friday as well. Of Eurasia. What a clinic with Eurasia Group. Again, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. You can get her wonderful Eurasia Group notes through the good people at Eurasia Group. I'm very pleased to say that one of our favourites on this program, are we allowed favourites, Tom Keane? Uh, yeah, I got yeah. Can we have, can we have a favourite? Uh, yeah, she's Diane go, she's go blue. She's so, fantastic. You know, Grant Mich- Thorne, chief economist, and she joins yeah. us now. Dan, great to have you with us on the program. The working assumption of so many people is that these talks go okay this Thursday, this Friday. Is that your working assumption? We have to assume that they're going to go okay, but then you have to also think about what can go wrong in the future. These are bilateral talks, and even if they go okay, and even if we cut a deal, any misstep, which is highly likely the only way to cure it with a bilateral trade agreement, is to levy tariffs again. And I think what's important to remember is we've sort of locked into trade wars perpetually by having these bilateral agreements instead of multilateral agreements, which gives you the power of peer pressure to keep countries in line. Do you get the sense that Europe is next, Diane? That's Europe is next, and what I worry about is that they um, will actually see some tariffs levied before we actually come to an agreement with Europe because they're in a very tenuous situation in terms of what we're asking. We're asking for the moon, and if we just stayed in TPP, we'd have a lot of these things already, but we tore up agreements, and it's really undermined trust when we're dealing with these other countries. If these talks this Thursday, this Friday go badly, there's a whole load of estimates, guesses out there as to what will happen with markets. UBS Global Wealth coming out with 30% odds for breakdown in talks and saying that Chinese stocks might fall between 15 to 20%. US earnings could contract by 5%. Stocks could drop by 10 to 15%. The differences in the guesses and the estimates out there vary, Diane, but do you have a base case for how you would adjust your GDP outlook for the rest of this year? if talks broke down this coming weekend? What really is the issue is how long talks break down. If it's just a temporary blip where they levy the tariffs and then they take them back, it's just a disruption that we can get through without a lot of cost to the overall economy. It will clearly add to volatility, and I think that's the real issue, is that these kinds of threats continue to add to volatility when we've not had a lot. And also, it's interesting how much markets sort of cancel out the noise a bit, hoping that they they won't have a problem with it. What I think is if we do actually go through with this and have a long period, say, you know, several quarters of tariffs, this is something that could trigger a recession by 2020. Well, uh, that's where I want to go. How are the markets treating the Diane Swank world? Are we ignoring Fed? Are we ignoring economics as we dash to look at earnings and revenue review? I think we're discounting an enormous amount right now. What's amazing is how much we're discounting the uncertainty created by these things because they do undermine decision-making by businesses, and I already have taken a bit off. So what's your GDP number? Yeah, what's your new number? 
the number for the year is you know a little over two percent. But what is concerning is what does it mean going forward into 2020? And I still have a recession in 2020, and I want to wow. eliminate that, okay, how, okay, but so, I can't because of the uncertainty. Okay, so you know, McKee's going to ask Claret. Claret is going to say it's a solid economy. He's going to say I talked to Diane Swank, and she said two point X percent. How do you get from that? stability and optimism to your caution of a recession call. How do you get to a recession call? You get to a recession call by accumulating the uncertainty that we've got. And particularly in the Fed did release their financial stability and they talked about leveraged loans, the non-financial, high amount of non-financial corporate debt. And that's where you start to get concerns where it's not just an accelerant, which um, we heard Jay Powell talk about an accelerant in a recession. You could actually have the junk bond debt and the debt that's the next tranche above it start to get downgraded as you add things like tariffs and companies are going to be a affected by that. And that could be more of a trigger to a recession rather than just an accelerated, once you're in a recession, all that debt that we have overhang in the non-financial sector. Diane, final question for you before we let you go. Busy morning for everyone involved. Rich Claret, that interview with the vice chair and Michael McKee a little bit later, what is it that you want to hear? What is it that you, that you would be asking of him? Well, I think the biggest question now is how do they deal with the decision rule on inflation? What does symmetry mean? What does low inflation mean? What would it take for them to actually make a preemptive cut in the Fed funds rate wow. or in short-term rates when we have low inflation? Or is it something I, you ignore for a long period of time? I, I don't think I've ever heard Diane Swank this cautious. You know, it's something. It's great to catch up with Diane. Diane Swank it there, is. Grant right. Thornton, Chief Economist. Right now, a broader view, and I'm going to digress from the usual. We can do that with Admiral Stravitas. He is with Carlisle Group. Of course, you know him for years of dedication at the Fletcher School, Tufts University. Admiral Stravitas, let us talk sea power this morning. Translate for our listeners what it means when the media says that Abraham Lincoln deploys from Naval Station Norfolk. What actually happens when something that big deploys? So these are aircraft carriers, about 100,000 tons, Tom. Uh, Crew is about 5,000. They're surrounded by about uh, 10 additional ships with another 5,000 sailors. So figure kind of 8 to 10 ships as well as 10,000 sailors, 70 combat aircraft, um, hundreds of Tomahawk missiles. That entire consortium, if you will, is called a carrier strike group. That is what has deployed and it's headed toward the Arabian Gulf. They're headed there in all of us of a certain vintage, including you, Admiral. Remember the certitude of big fleets, not in World War II, but if we just go to Argentina and the Falkland Islands, Mm -hmm. there are threats out there. What are the threats to the Abraham Lincoln or is this a junket to show the flag? This is a real threat to the uh, strike group uh, as we look at Iranian capability in the Arabian Gulf where they're headed. What the Iranians can do is launch cruise missiles from the shore. They can send jet aircraft. They can use diesel submarines to attack it. Uh, They have 
any number of ways they can attack this strike group. So tensions are rising. We ought to be quite concerned. About and, I, you know, not to go Hollywood, but, to, but seriously, folks, this is not just another junket. It is in harm's way. The technology today in every part of what we covered, Surveillance Admiral, is always improved over 10 and 20 and 30 years ago. Do we see cruise missiles soon enough to deter them or shoot them down? Certainly anything the Iranians have in their inventory, we have fairly good countermeasures against them. Could they uh, saturate our air defenses? Possibly. Um, As I look at the Russians and the Chinese with what are called hypersonic cruise missiles, much, much faster than anything the Iranians have, that proves to be a greater threat. So what is our threat now in the South China Sea? We are directed here, folks, with distracted, I should say, with uh, trade negotiations as well. But I would suggest, Admiral, trade negotiations always fold over into military defense posturing, don't they? Indeed, as Clausewitz says, uh, war is just a continuation of politics by other means, but it's often a continuation of economics by another means. And the contention in the South China Sea, as you and your listeners know, is that China claims all of it, size of the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean Sea combined. We object to that along with the rest of the international community. Um, if there is a, a real point of potential conflict between China and the U.S. In the end, um, it'll Mm -hmm. explode in the South China Sea. Is something like the Abraham Lincoln, is it fully staffed, fully stocked, fully budgeted? I mean, mean, there there was always the worry, and I can't remember which presidency, that we were putting out hunks of metal onto the water that were under-budgeted, understaffed. Is that of the past, or is that still true? These carriers are extremely well-maintained, Uh, fully manned, uh, armed, uh, and highly capable. The problem is we don't have enough of them to face the global responsibilities we have, especially during a period of time when China and Russia are both adding to their fleet. So this is something that will have to be resolved going forward is numbers of ships are capabilities are quite high, but our quantity is not where it should be. We've been distracted, Admiral, by two empty governor's seats at the Federal Reserve. Is the Secretary of Defense seat empty? What is the psychology of everyone you know at the Pentagon about the ballet to get to someone to replace General Mattis? It, it, it is a, a very long ballet that doesn't appear to have an ending. We feel sort of like we're in Act 7 already. And we have an acting secretary who seems competent. His name is Tom Shanahan, came out of industry, uh, but he's still an acting. And so the president <clears throat> yeah. needs to either make him the actual secretary of defense or find somebody else because that moniker of acting does not instill confidence either within the Department of Defense or from our allies, partners, and friends. What did you learn about trade at Fletcher? I I mean, if I'm a military guy and you took the obligatory courses along the way like we all did, but then you dive into the multidisciplinary views of Tuff University and Fletcher, and now you're on to Mr. Rubenstein's Carlisle Group. But, But what did you learn uh, 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 what what surprised you about the trade discussion as it was made at Fletcher? Well, coming as I did from being the Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, I had a pretty good bead on European history, Tom, where we saw trade wars in the 1920s and 30s crack the global economy, created depression, and you can drop a plumb line from there to fascism and the Second World War, back to our earlier point yeah. of the fusion 
of economics and politics, what I learned is that nobody wins a trade war and that uh, free trade overall is a net good. Um, now, within those two twin towers of fact, in my view, there's room for negotiation and improvement in individual trade relationships. Let's hope that's what the president is driving toward. What insight can you give us about how the Chinese not negotiate, but how they tactically save face as they are struggling to find a path to come Friday or even the next Monday? China plays always the long game, and that's their greatest strength and advantage. They are willing to take tactical shortfalls in order to remain on a course for what they see is the creation of the China dream, the one belt, one road mercantile strategy stretching across the globe. Um, I think they will be willing to back off a bit. I think we will see a trade deal because China does not see this in any sense as the ultimate moment in the relationship, trade or otherwise. They're smart enough to play through it. So look for a resolution over the next few weeks. James Trevitas, thank you so much. And always, we treasure your perspective here with Sailors at Sea. The Abraham Lincoln deployed from Norfolk over to the Middle East in the Arabian Sea. Mr. Trevitas is with the Carlisle Group. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.